Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. In the late 60s, psychedelic music, influenced by the emerging drug culture, emerged on the music scene. And one of its most successful groups was Blues Magoos, most famous for their top five 1966 hit, We Ain't Got Nothing Yet. Today on RPM 45, we talk with its organist and vocalist, Ralph Scala. So yeah, I just want to talk about uh, the, the the band and uh, you know your experience, you know, with Blues Magoos and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. I've done it a million times, so I guess like I can remember some of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, when we were in the Blues Magoos, I think uh, I was like eight to nineteen, like a year or so out of high school. And how did how did you guys all get together? We just knew each other. From you know, living in the Bronx, you know, it's like a, it's like clustered neighborhoods. You know, even though it was like it was around New York City, we were in, New York City was easy to get to for us. So, so you guys were started out in uh, Greenwich Village, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had the advantage: jump on a subway train, and boom, you're in Greenwich Village. In those days, Greenwich Village was a breeding ground for record companies to go in and get new talent. Mm-hmm. We were playing the, in the village. You know, the Loving Spoonful were playing in the village. A couple of other bands, Jimi Hendrix came in, and the record labels were there looking for bands to record. Right. We got picked up by this uh, talent manager, Marvin Laganoff who was also managing Simon and Garfunkel at the same time. Wow. And we auditioned in this guy's office in, an, in like a you know, 28-story office building <laughs> on you know, Madison Avenue in New York City. We just showed up in a taxi cab, took the drums, the organ, guitars, and just went right up the elevator and set up in his office and played for him. And so we started getting a lot of interest, and that's when our, produ- our producers found us. And one of the guys who was the producer was a professional engineer, so he had all the recording time. We would go in at 8 o'clock at night and get out at 8 o'clock in the morning. And uh, they got us signed with Mercury Records. And Mercury Records, I, I read on your on the band website uh, something that kind of got my attention. It said you were subject to intense grooming. What does that mean? Well, hair was the big thing. Everybody had to have long hair. Then outfits, everybody had to have different outfits. Yeah, the, the idea in those days... People who played in bands, in real good, you know, bands that were professional and everything, never looked like the audience. You know, now everyone on the stage looks like everyone in the audience. But in those days, the trick was to wear outrageous clothing. Yeah. And we we found in New York City, there's a couple of uh, stage costume companies where you could walk in and walk out like a Civil War veteran. So we always get, would get the craziest clothes, and that, that was a lot of grooming, I would suspect. Okay, uh, I heard that you guys had uh, clothes that lit up, is that true? Diane Diamond, I'm trying to remember her name, was a clothing designer in the village, and she you know, saw us playing one night, and uh, she said, hey, I got a great idea. You, we, were, we were using strobe lights and everything on stage by that time. Of course. And we had our strobes and you know, the lava lamps, and she said, "Man, this lighting show is great. I got an idea. I can make you suits that you know that have uh, like we would call them now LED lights yeah. on them. You know, so so she makes these suits out of this like uh, you know it's like a plastic, a soft, malleable, clothed, deep fitting plastic. They were like a thousand bucks a piece. 
And we bought them, or the, the Mercury Records bought them. And then charged us, you know, $20,000. <laughs> so uh, we started wearing them, and they had a little battery pack on the side. You didn't, it, but they didn't have rechargeable you know, electronics in those days, so it was just a battery that you'd have to replace. And you, we could turn them on, they could they would flash, or they would stay on lit, you know, solid lit, and they, or they'd blink at different speeds and everything. And we started playing you know, live with them. I think we played in, I think we opened up in Chicago wearing them for the first time. That's so cool. That's great. That must have really caught some attention. But I started electrocuting you because <laughs> after you wear them, they were friggin' hot, right? So you'd be sweating to death. Oh, and okay. Down, you know, as the, you know, the, or the wiring, this is all real thin wiring that's, that's sewn into the material, into the sleeves, you know, in the chest. I think that must have been before LEDs, because LEDs don't get hot. We were getting yeah, right, but the uniform got hot. I bet, because they were probably normal lights, right, normal light bulbs. Yeah. Yeah. We started shocking ourselves. We couldn't even wear them. Oh, God. Yeah, between touching the microphone with your mouth, (laughs) (laughs) and then we finally gave up on them. So how did We Ain't Got Nothing Yet come about? To play in, in Greenwich Village and around you know, that uh, that area, you had to play original music. No cover band uh-huh. <laughs> needed, you know. Mm-hmm. So you had to go in with a good set of original songs or reworked folk songs, you know. And we were we were the you know the noisiest band on the block, mm-hmm. and a lot of our residences were crashing. Yeah, you know, we only you're considering we only lived like a half an hour subway train from our parents' house, you know. Yeah. So and we were get a high to high school so we would go out and you know play a couple of nights at a club or so and when we got hungry we'd run home to our parents house sleep for three days eat everything and then go back down to the village and play again we rented hotel suite we, there was this old hotel down there called the albert, albert hotel where um a lot of musicians actors and people like that in show business would say because it was really cheap really run down and uh, and you had a place to sleep. We had a big suite there. We were crashing. You know, it was like what, three hundred hours a week or something like that for six rooms. <laughs> and that's where we wrote. We didn't get nothing yet because we had to think of a new song. And we used to sit around and think of new songs. You know, write songs all, all day and then play them at night. And you know, when we'd go out to the clubs. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, we were in a mode where we, we, were, we ain't got nothing yet. But, you know, we were, like, prospecting on how good we were going to get. You know, so one of us or something, we all came up with that title. To me, it's very clear, the meaning of the song. You guys are striving musicians, you know, and, you know, you ain't got nothing yeah. yet, but you're going to have something. Right, that was the whole premise. Yeah. And then uh, we worked on it, you know, right there, you know, chord, playing the chords. I was the lead singer, so I would sing the word, make up the melodies and everything the uh, C sharp minor, C minor jazz riff. Then the bass part. Did Deep Purple steal that? Yeah, they stole it. And, uh, uh, little Steven Van Zandt from uh, Bruce Springsteen's band, he, he bought it from us one time for for his movie. The song gets a lot of airplay. You know, these oldie stations. Uh-huh. There was an oldie station that I started getting in my car. And I was listening to it one time, and of course I heard we ain't got nothing yet. And I go, oh, I like this station. And uh, I started listening to it, and you get to hear these old records that you know, were recorded in the 60s, you know, the early 60s, mid, late 60s, early 70s. 
that I never really, I knew them, you know, I could sing every one of them, but I never really listened to them, you know. I started listening to these oldie records, and man, these guys were freaking good. The drummers, you know, and the singing, the background singing was really remarkable. Yeah, it was a great time. The 60s, uh, something about the 60s is just magical. Yeah, people were very creative, and uh, everyone had to come up with a trick sound, you know, a new riff. You know, in the old days, uh, in the olden days, uh, if a, a record producer or an A&R guy at a label or a publishing company couldn't hum your song by the end of eight bars or, or 12 or 16 bars, they didn't listen to it anymore. You know, they just pulled the needle off the record. Uh-huh. Uh, everything had to be catchy sure. and memorable. Yeah, exactly. So it was uh, considered psychedelic music. Yeah, because we didn't do the standard format, you know, the uh, 145 you know, progression, you know, you're in C and you know the next chord is going to be uh, either A, C to A minor and then it's going to be F and G, you know. And a lot of songs, if you listen to them, 90%, you know, there's a million songs that are just written by C, A minor, F and G, you know, the Beatles wrote songs using those three chords, four chords, you know, C, A minor, F and G. All to, you can just play and make, you know, tons of melodies. So as we were breaking away from that, and a lot of things like, but our songs like Pipe Dream and songs on our album, which did well on the charts, too. You, know, you didn't get the standard, uh-oh, here comes the instrumental break. Mm-hmm. You know, we would write songs that, you know, had to have memorable melodies and titles and, and word you know, references and story references that didn't go where you were going to expect it, like all the other thousands of records that you hear on the radio all uh-huh. the time. Yeah, it was definitely a different sound. I, I can't explain, you know, I don't have the understanding to explain what made it different, but you knew it when you heard it. Yeah, and as, like I said before, that was the way you got noticed, you know, by having something different. What are you involved in? Are you you in the radio business? Yeah, I was in the radio business for like 30 plus, no, more like 40 plus years. I I was a DJ and then I was a programmer. I'm surprised we didn't meet you. We used to tour every every city in the country. And the first thing you did when you got there... Go to the local radio. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't get into it till 71. So, uh, yeah. And I was in Marinette, Wisconsin. No artist came to our station, believe me. (laughs) It was too small time for that. Yeah, we went everywhere. Mercury Records spent every penny we ever made on on touring us. Is that right? I hear this all the time. I hear this all the time about the money and, and the deals with the record companies and how artists get screwed. I hear this from so many people doing this. I mean, it's really been an education for me. Yeah, it was promotional money. Yeah. And but, they would, their record, which was the product that made them money. We were just the, um, what's the right word to describe it? We were just the tools yeah. that, that they used to make the record. But then once that record was made, every penny it generated went to the record company. And the leftovers went to the, uh, you know, the work, the workers, the people who did you know, actual performances. Yeah, and a lot of times it wasn't much. Yeah, well, we sold a lot of records. Yeah, we sold a lot of money worth of records. Yeah, oh, I know you did. Days. No, I mean after it's all over, though, after you got all all the other things deducted from it. <laughs> yeah, they would deduct. We you know, we were living high on the hog, you know. Yeah. Limos everywhere, private airplanes, you know, vacations, you know, touring every city. All our expense. We had a really famous big uh, booking agent that would book us everywhere too. You know, they would get paid after all our shows and everything, and we never saw a penny of it. 
Wow. We get like like a hundred bucks a week. Here's a hundred. Go out and have some fun. And, and we were traveling so much and playing. No one had time to spend any money. You obviously generated a lot of money. It was a top five record. Yeah. So what's it like having a top five record at a young age? Yeah, me personally, I didn't. I, didn't, I was so ego oriented that I, it was expected of me to have that. So I just considered it part of the norm, you know. Yep, I'm gonna have some top ten record, top five. Number. We were number one in cash box too, and uh, I just expected it, you know. And said my next, all I did was spend every waking hour trying to come up with a new song just uh -huh. to keep the thing going. Yeah, that's all I did, uh -huh. and I, I was a nervous the whole time. <laughs> I hardly enjoyed anything because all I was doing was worrying about making a follow-up hit. <laughs> so you you had a lot of pressure. You you felt that you were going to get follow-up hits. Well, you had. I didn't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> so what happens after that? No, we made uh, three albums, and uh, they all got progressively better musically. The uh, success level diminished, and then I personally got more interested in different styles of music, of learning music, particularly learning rhythm and blues, learning how to play and write rhythm and blues music, mm -hmm. learning how to play country music. I became friends with a, a forerunner in the crossover era, like Graham Parsons. So we started learning how to play country music through him and then started listening to country music records, you know, George Jones, all the way back to Hank Williams, and learning the old American blues artists, you know, Lightning Hopkins, Finale Hooker, and, uh, and the whole list. So my life, and, and so like, and Ronnie Gilbert, I know the bass player, our lives became involved in learning how to play music. Okay. You had realized. We were just teen yeah, we were teenagers. So, you know, we were just you know eager to learn how to play. So the band breaks up like what year? Like late sixties? Yeah, uh, probably nineteen sixty nine or seventy something. Okay. Like that. Yeah, we just kind of got off in different interests, you know, and could financially support ourselves. So have you been a musician this whole time? Ever since then? Is yeah. No, not not hundred percent. I kind of got, you know, discouraged in it because uh, there's too much red tape and too much, you know, hanging around and schmoozing. And I think, screw this, you know, I'm, I'll just play. So I and started my country music bands. <laughs> we played two, three nights a week. I think for years, 18 years, you know, played in all the honky-tonks, the bars, you know, and we, you know, the firehouses. It was tremendous fun. We'd go up and play four sets on a Friday and Saturday night. Go on at 10, finish at 3.30, got to play all you wanted. New songs every week. Without the pressure of record companies and, oh, you're going to be a star. Are you kidding? I'm already a star. I don't need to be a star. <laughs> you did I, it. Yeah, I, I played under the guise. No one ever knew that I was you know, a rock and roll musician, from you know, a famous rock and roll star. But we, I never showed myself off as that. I just played as my band, uh -huh. The Country Sunshine. Interesting. So, so tell me about it. your new album that you're doing with Blues Magoos. Right, yeah, I'm just saying right now we're going through email recording. Hey, I just recorded this. Let me play this part. Oh, I'm going to add this part. It's like you, you hear everything, you know, from thousands of miles away yeah. you know, in 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely, it's, it's a tough, but people are, are doing recordings that way now. They're collaborating online. Hell of a lot of work to do it, but they're doing it. What What about today's music? You know, today's top forty music. Are you into that at all? Do you still listen to it? Yes, I do. I um, I, I have a young daughter, so she's from the last you know eighteen eighteen years. 
you know, when you got the daughter in the car, you have to listen to their music. And I, she grew up on Disney, you know, Miley Cyrus, all that type of music. My daughter, too, yeah. I do appreciate a lot of that music, that electronic stuff. Oh, yeah. The EDM stuff, the the dance stuff, Zed yeah. and all that. Yeah, that comes from my R&B background, you know, of, of liking, you know, understanding and playing rhythm and blues music. You know? Yeah, I like that stuff, too. The rap, not so much. Uh, I like some of it, but mostly I, I don't, you know. But uh, but the but the uh, dance music, I like a lot. I always, when I hear a rap song, I'll, I'll, I'll say to the person listening to it, I go, man, I can't get that melody out of my head. <laughs> Melody's really capturing me. <laughs> yeah. The best ones there are ones that mix rap with dance. Those work, I oh, think. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like like these songs uh, that have a rap break. That, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right. I don't mind that. I don't mind like, that. I, that works for me. But uh, the straight rap stuff, not so much, you know. But, you know, I was a top 40 DJ, so uh, we're all like teenagers at heart. And so I've never quite lost my interest, even in the current music. Because they always say, you know, when you get hired at a radio station, you get hired to be fired. Absolutely. You know, how many? How do you handle changing jobs, changing so many stations? I always used to freak out or feel sorry for you guys, you know? Well, yeah, you should. <laughs> you should. Uh, I was in it for 10 years. I was in radio forever but because I did uh, research and consulting for stations. But I was actually on the air professionally for 10 years, and I worked at seven different stations. Probably all of a sudden the guy's off the air. Right, right. I've been but, through, uh, I've been through that more than once. It must be horrible. It is. <laughs> they don't trust you to say goodbye. Yeah, right. <laughs> They're afraid. Oh, what else yeah, you're gonna but... say? All right. All right. Well, listen. That's thanks exciting. so much. It's exciting. Thanks. Real DJ. <laughs> so funny. I'm talking to a rock star, and you're excited about talking to a DJ. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> of, uh, you know, the music world and everything. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, thanks a lot. Oh, super, man. Great. Thanks to Ralph Scala. Interesting guy. And thank you for listening to RPM 45. We'll be back with another episode next Wednesday.